Amen. Amen. How many of you have been ministered to this morning? Amen. Amen. Grateful for everybody. You know, God has great things for you. I don't know what might be going through our minds this morning. I don't know what you might be living or going through. But I can guarantee that Jesus is still upon the throne and God wants to. He wants to minister to your heart's greatest need today. And some of us have gotten discouraged because of time. And I think what I'm going to share with you this morning will have a little bit to do with that. Sometimes time lapses and discouragement has settled in and we don't even realize it. But I want to just say to you, if you're that person, I want to say God's got something for you today and he wants to minister to you. Open up your heart to him. Just open your heart to him. See, this is the thing is that Jesus said simply this. He said, they that hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. God does the filling. God does the work. You just be, you're just the one that opens up to him. All you have to do is have an open heart. It's that simple. We don't have to make it about anything else but an open heart. And I just want to encourage you, open your hearts this morning, because I believe you probably already have the Lord's ministry to you, and He wants to continue to do so. But let's just do that this morning. Amen? So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 18, we're going to look at the verses 1 through 15. Genesis 18. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much. I love I love the atmosphere in this place. I love the atmosphere of being in your presence. Your word says that in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Oh God, if, if the selfish nature that was built into hum, humanity really could discover that the, the greatest joys, those most ecstatic moments of life would be shared only with you, God, this place would be filled to the capacity. But Lord, there's, there's another one. It's an opposition to hide this from the eyes of all who can. You said the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel should shine to them. Lord, I am grateful that today, not only do I get to clear, declare the gospel, but I get to be an illustration of its reality and its, its life-giving force inside of me. And Lord, I know that maybe in many ways that we can't, not everybody can see how vivid and real that is for me personally. But God, as you invite us into your presence today, I believe we'll know more and more what this is. God, I pray that through this time, this message, that you would anoint these things. And God, even if it's not here written down, I pray that you'll have me speak in the moment the things, Lord, that we need to hear today. And God, I'm grateful for, Lord, the advancement into the kingdom of God. For those, Lord, who are destroying works of darkness in their life, and stepping into what it is that you really want them to know and to experience. And we just ask, Lord, for more of you today. Lord, we, we not beg, but desire you, Lord, with all of our hearts. And thank you, Lord, for meeting us right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, honestly, I'm gonna be, I'd like to just go to prayer right now. I'd just rather just not preach. I enjoy this time and I enjoy sharing God's word, but I love to be able to pray. This morning we had a wonderful prayer time with just a, a few folks, and that prayer time was phenomenal. It was wonderful. I love what God does in those because he, he begins to mold things into our spirit. He reveals things out of his word while you're praying. 
And one of the things I've loved, and I don't know if any of you can say the same thing. I'm sure you can because if I've experienced, God's done it for others. But it's amazing how when you're in a moment of prayer or God's just, how would I say, inspiring you in the moment, Scripture comes alive and the revelation that God has for that in you comes alive to you. And I remember that being one of the turning points of my life a long time ago was that when all of a sudden this book came to me and I would say it came alive, it just became a living, breathing Word of God to me. My whole life changed at that point. My life changed when this was no longer just a book with words written in it and I could understand what God was saying to me personally. That's amazing that God can open our hearts and take this finite world we live in and create the majesty of who He is and magnify us beyond our words to be able to say it. And I'm so grateful for what He's done in my life. And I am grateful for what He's doing in you guys. I'm grateful for what He's doing in this church and in this community. So here in John chapter, I mean Genesis, you're like, John, what's John? John uh, Genesis chapter 18, let's read through verses 1 through 15. Let's just give you the context of this story. And the Lord appeared unto him in... Why do I look like I'm... Yes, okay. In Tabrinith, the trees of Mamir, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes, and this is speaking of Abraham, and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and washed to, and to wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And after that, you may pass by. Inasmuch as you have come to your servant, they said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to the young man, and he hastened to prepare it. And so he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And so he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. And therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Amen. Amen. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. There's our context there. Now, 
As you see, the title here is Headship in the Home. And what I'm going to say is that I feel like the message of headship fits. It's not the context. So when we read the Bible, the focus is to read it within its context. The context of it or the focus of these passages, we're not talking primarily or uh, intentionally upon headship. But what I do see is, I do see headship intermingled within that. And so I want to share with you about three points that I feel like as I see that, and I see the importance of that within our homes and our environment. But one of the things that I felt like God really gave to me this week as I was spending time just going through this is what is headship? And, you know, in in some ways we felt like the way it's been presented and the way it appeals to us is as if it's like an authority. I have an authority and we stop there. And so when we think of headship and we would be rightly saying if we thought of headship as having authority, but it goes far greater than that. And if we don't get the bigger picture of what headship is, we might miss this altogether in our Christian homes, in our lives. We may be doing things in our life thinking that we are honoring God's idea of headship and really missing it altogether. And that's why I feel like this is the, an important time to be bringing this up into our, our lives and in our church. So let me give you a time. I like to sit down and ask God, Lord, help me define this in a way that I understand it. And this is, this is my time with God. So it isn't a, a dictionary definition or even the Strong's Concordance, because I feel like oftentimes when you read that, it still doesn't get all the harmony of everything else in Scripture that's there. So I, this is mine, okay? But I believe this. Headship is a God-ordained order of stewardship to maintain all of creation. This was so that the harmony and purpose He instilled in creation would be maintained through us. Headship is the vested interest we were designed to have in that which God put under our care. In the truest sense, we were not just part of the ultimate design, we are the caretakers of it. Headship as God ordained it is not, a base, is not based on dominion, but on integrity. We do not rule to conquer or subdue, but to further the legacy and the glory of God, honoring His original interest in a changing world. So headship in marriage, when we think of it in the context of our home, is exactly the same thing. Marriage is exactly the same thing. Husbands were given the lead role in the home, not to conquer or subdue, but to further the legacy and glory of God in the marriage union, and the wife to support and undergird it with all her strength and commitment. When we think of headship as just we are caretakers of what God has put in place, we're not... We're not the ones who conquer or have ultimate authority over it. We know Him as the one that has authority, but we're the caretakers of. So when we think of our families, we're the caretakers. Men, especially, we want you to understand, you're the caretakers undergirding what God designed in your marriage. Not undergirding your preferences, not undergirding your desires, not undergirding your needs, but first and foremost, making sure that God's glory and what He intended for marriage should be the outcome. And as a result of that, the reality is many of us, because we're sustained on what we want to in our marriages and we want in our life, we don't have the maturity to equip our wives and equip our homes with the, God, with the glory of God because we're not dead to self. We're, we're all about ministering to self. So the society around us, and even in many ways, you'll find when we're talking about um, marriage in ministry, you'll, a lot of messages seem to be all about making sure you're catering to the individuality of your spouse, 
rather than furthering the glory of God. And the reason why that's an issue is because if we're not careful, we've got other issues to deal with if we don't make God the predominant and the motivating force behind our marriage. But think of it as caretakers. I'm not subduing or conquering. And men, we feel like this oftentimes in our homes, but we feel like we don't have the respect that we need to be the head in our home. We don't feel like we're valued and honored in the way that uh, a head would. And so when we go to our job sites, we feel like we're executing it the way the headship is. But headship on, and the role of headship in a job is not the same as it is in the home. And we need to realize that, and God didn't ordain it the same way. But if we realize it isn't, didn't start with marriage, it started with creation, it makes more sense to us. So let's read here in verses 6 and 7. Let's go back to those verses. I want to point out something here in, verse eight, in chapter 18, verses 6 through 7. And Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. <clears throat> so he hastened to this tent. And what I see in this is, is that you see the everyday picture of what a husband and wife go through, what your nat- normal experiences are. We want to remember that there are normal and common everyday engagements in our life. But what we also want to remember is, is that while we're experiencing those everyday engagements, we also have a greater context that we're supporting. And so sometimes we think, well, you know, in our home, the, uh, my wife is taking care of doing homeschool with the kids. I'm off at the church taking care of phone calls, taking care of other things ministry-wise. And um, sometimes I'm on a project taking care of things. You never know what you're going to be doing in this life, and it all just seems natural and general to life. And we forget the fact that God has actually wanted every bit of what we do to be housed into a greater context. And to me, when I see this story, I see a context of headship there. I see that God wants us to remember that we're protecting headship. And wives, I think a lot of times you look at like you're trying to protect the headship of your husband. But no, actually you're valuing headship itself. The honor, the fact that God created the universe and sustains it with order. And you want to step behind what God is doing. Secondarily, your husband comes into that picture. But primarily, what God intended is the main focus. And that's pretty powerful when we realize that because sometimes really to be able to do what God wants us to do in our homes, we have to say irrespective of you and irrespective of the way you're being, I value what God has put in place and I do this for the sake of God and I want your best. I love you, but you're not right. (laughs) And sometimes that's the position that women are put in. There's no doubt about that. Many times, oftentimes, you see that as men are just like these, they, they don't get it. So I believe the way we view headship is central to everything. Look in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 29. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 29. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. If you haven't got that one highlighted, you might want to. As to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. Remember, we're focusing on caretaker stewardship. 
Yes, there's a role of authority that the husband carries, but as a caretaker, not as, a con- not as one who's making conquest here. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Caretaker. You see it? Just as Christ also loved the church. You see it? He's caring for. He's taking care of. And gave himself for her. There you see it again. That he might sanctify and cleanse her. There it is one more time. And the washing of the water of the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, he who loves, his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Do you see the headship picture here? And and this is supposed to be the entirety and the rule of our our lives. And men, I want you to glean vision and understanding and desire under this of how can I be there as to support the main purpose of which God has made my wife. He hasn't made her there just to be a helpmeet for me and take care of my personal needs. Wash your clothes, make your meals. And sometimes that's the mentality we've gotten over time. But her value is not in all those things. And what God has created her for and her intention was beyond all of that. And ladies, as you see your husband, he's the main caretaker for all that God designed for in your home. You know, and so oftentimes as men, we feel like, ladies, you call us on and you say, honey, the kids are doing this. And we're out there to be the disciplinarians, but we're not thinking of ourselves as caretakers. And when I think of this in my home, it's been... And I spent some time. The Lord's been doing some amazing things in my life with my kids, my home, the way that I communicate. And some major changes are taking place just in my life. And what I feel like is the Lord is propelling me forward in being able to see from His vantage point and be able to work and live in such a way that agrees with it. Because oftentimes there's things that we do that don't agree with the way God wants things to be done. And so we do it our way and we miss it all the way. And then we have this grievous struggle of things that keep falling apart. And we don't know why they are, but it's because we won't do it God's way. And it's beautiful when we do. Because then now I realize as a caretaker, I'm being there to nourish my home. I'm being there to facilitate what God wants. There's times I, in discipline, yes, I say no. But in love, I also bring something else in. I want my children to be fed. I want them to know what it's like in an early age for God to minister to them. This morning, I'm just blessed by both uh, my younger kids, Caleb and Sarah, they had shared that they had just spent some time in devotion together in the morning. And sometimes that happens sporadically. But I love the fact not only that they did that, but she comes to me and she says, Daddy, Daddy, the Lord was ministering to me and I was in tears. You understand? The presence of the Lord was there meeting her in, in her time. And it's a powerful when we get together. It's powerful because we don't realize You don't know when you're going what God's going to do. You just believe that the Lord wants to meet you there in that moment. But for me, I want to house that. I want to protect that. I want to guard guard that and nourish that in their lives. So if I'm angry and all of a sudden speaking out against my kids, it doesn't take long before I'm undermining the very thing that God just did in them. So I realize maybe I'm trying to discipline them and I'm, I'm too harsh. 
And so God's pulling me out of that and helping me communicate and see their heart in it. And also see his picture for their life. It's beautiful when he does. This is some examples of what can happen. So here's a thought here going along with the fact that we're doing life together and what is headship. Dominion makes women feel like slaves and property. If we look at headship as dominion, as just an authoritative thing, that's what they feel like. And of men, it makes them proud and entitled. But the difference is stewardship gives women the sense of being cared for without manipulation or control. They don't have to manipulate you or control you, but they can be cared for. And with men, that they can lead without forcing or demanding. Stewardship is not a conquest, but a commission. There's something for you to write down. Not a conquest, but a commission. Like Jesus commissioning his church. Think of it like that. So we're not trying to conquest. We're there to facilitate our families. Our responses toward one another may feel as if it only affects our relationship when in fact it represents how true we are to God. Do you understand? I can... I, <laughs> I would be honest in saying that in my marriage that I can create irritations. In my family and with my kids that I create irritations. Just simply because I have this human quality about me that I'm learning to submit to God on a daily level. But because there's imperfection, there needs to be a layer of realization of she's going to have to at times and I'm going to have to at times and you guys are at the same time in your relationships going to have to say, this is not as grievous as it feels or as difficult as it is in my relationship with my spouse in the moment. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. That's most important to me. Not because my spouse isn't important. It's because they are very important. And as we walk in the direction God does, we cultivate in his field. And God begins to make sure that the seeds that were put in that field grow. But we need to cultivate that field very carefully and wisely in our own homes. When we value headship itself, we will do things in honor of that, irrespective of our spouse's deservingness of it. And only then will we detract from and abhor behaviors, listen to this, that feel genuine, but obviously betray God's order of leadership. I'm going to say that one more time. And I'm not seeing you writing down, so you probably should. This is a good one to get down. Only when, only then, when we see headship as God does, will we detract from and abhor behaviors that feel genuine. This anger feels genuine, but I will detract from it and I will abhor it because it obviously betrays God's order. Next is, the love of God's ways provides no grounds to justify the actions that spring from human irritations. I didn't say limitations. I said irritations. Human irritations. We are so firmly fixed on loving God, and we love His ways, that human irritations, we don't have justifications for their common release over and over and over again. The closer we are impacted by God and our union and relationship with Him, the way better we are going to be at not giving in to human irritations, not just limitations. Do you like that? I didn't get an amen on that one. I was expecting an amen. So here's another one. Look in verse 9. I want you to look in verse 9 as well. This is awesome. So Genesis Genesis uh, chapter 18, verse 9. Got to get back there. 
I'm just getting to where this is good. I'm getting to where it's good. Okay, Genesis chapter 8. Verse 9. Uh, no, sorry, 18. Sorry, 18. You probably didn't get that. I missed it. Verse 9. So I found this interesting in the story of God speaking to Abraham. And he said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. What I noticed here was God, God was doing something for Sarah. She was the one that was going to be bearing the son. She was the one that's going to have the son. And you would be thinking, generally, why isn't God speaking to Sarah? And so 18 verse 9. Looks like a few people were still turning. So God says to Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? And that, I think, is foundational when we're talking about headship. Here's one of the reasons why. We're responsible and accountable for those under our headship. Men, you're accountable for what's under your authority. God has put you in an authority so that you can stand and gird and guard your family. And because of that, you have a responsibility and accountability to that. Your wives don't. <laughs> Ladies, you got it good on that one. You don't have to wear that. You don't have to carry that. But what you do is you have to be faithful to undergird it. That's really, really important. Look in Hebrews 13, verse 17, just as a focus of the accountability. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account and let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You see what he's saying? For those who are in the submissive side, or basically the undergirding side, this is going to be unprofitable for you if you if headship is done well. If your husband is doing his job the way he's supposed to, if he's living out and caretaking for you, then you have to do this for his well-being and for yours. God has designed a unique oneness meant to be shared by husband and wife, of which God has made the man a covering for. Our differences may, listen to this, may provoke us to worship individuality. Our differences may provoke us to worship individuality rather than honor oneness. In so doing, our efforts may be applied to forcing our marriage into individualism, entitling our spouse to gratify our personal interests as the main obligation of our union. We have to be careful that our, our demands and expectations in our home are not really more or less this individuality that we're holding on to rather than this unique union and oneness that God designed marriage for. And so what I see in this is, is that when we think of headship, we think of predominantly who's the head, who's the lead in this. But when you really capture what I'm trying to say is you'll see headship as the center and man and his wife going to the center of headship. It's just as much responsibility on her is as it is on his. In order to guard and protect this order that God has given is essential to both sides. And when we fail on one side, it becomes lopsided and who knows what's going to happen with it. It takes a great woman or a man of integrity to make up the difference where the marriage is faltering.
Here in Philippians 2, verses 1-4, through 4, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Now this wasn't for this wasn't specifically to marriages, but you'll read it in elsewhere in marriages as well. I just love this one. Having the same love, being of one accord, the same love of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Isn't that a powerful scripture? Doesn't that drive home the main point of what we're talking about? Is what it's saying is, is that even if you're like given the headship or the lead role, essentially, you need just as much vested interest, both parties, in this relationship of considering others before yourself. In contrast, a commitment to oneness and working toward the end, regarding the husband as the loving head, respects our differences without losing sight of our spouse. Where is Sarah? We respect those differences without losing sight. And I think when, when the angel's speaking to him, he's one, trying to get his attention because he says, I'm about to do this miracle that includes Sarah, but this is going to foster into the entirety of your family and beyond your legacy. You need to know that she's going to be at the center point of what I'm about to do. So you need to know where she's at, not just physically, but you need to know where she is spiritually. You need to be able to know where you, where she is in your home and what her, her struggles are with God, what her emotional stresses are. In every way, Abraham, where is Sarah? Where is she? And men, I would say this to you. Where is your wife? How well do you know where she is at the moment? Is it that you can say everything's going well, but when she talks to her friends, that she says things are not going well? but she feels like she can depend on their care more than she can yours. This is a place where we want to get in and be busy about our business and do what we call, God called us to do in our homes. And at the same time, ladies, you can see this end of your husband is, if he's needing to know where you are, you want to make sure that you're not so far away that he doesn't know where you're at. There is times in our life where like, I can't give an account for. There's a point in which I can't, and I'm going to come to a point where this is going to really come into play and we'll understand where is it cut off for the man and where does it cut off for the woman, essentially. So I want to go with you to verse 13. So look at verse 13. This is awesome. This is what really perplexed me because I was like, okay, Lord, this seems like you're really digging into Abraham. He says, and the Lord said to Abraham, now this was after Sarah laughed. Why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old. Now to me, the normal male response to that would be, I don't know, ask her. Like, like is my responsibility to control her behavior or what she's supposed to be doing? Why did she laugh? Like, I know why she laughed, or maybe he doesn't know. Essentially, it's like, well, that all makes sense, and even it's explained in there, but there's a purpose and a design. And I, I see when God is saying, when he's speaking to the head, he's actually addressing us first. What a big responsibility. So here's my thought on that. The husband must give an account for that which is not under his control, but listen, but under his influence. I don't control you, but I influence you. So it doesn't matter my mood. 
my attitude or anything else, how I, how I spend money, how I don't spend money, all of that is an influence to your behavior. Now, what I can't do is, if I can't guarantee that if I influence you rightly, and I have a godly faithfulness towards you, that that means you're going to respond faithfully and rightly back. But what I do know is this, is that, one, I still should do it because it's the most likely to gain your, the hope of your heart. The other one is, is because that's what I'm accountable for. When you read the, in Ezekiel, if you'll go there real quick, just look in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. We're going to look in Ezekiel real quick. Super important. Again, the context of this verse is not based on marriage, but it is on headship and accountability for what we influence. Okay, so we see here in Ezekiel 3, verses 20 through 21, And again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin or iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, God speaking, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Do you see the significance of that? God is saying to the prophet, you have a part to influence. Now, you may tell him what he's to do. You may call him to a place of repentance, and he not do that. But you're free at that point. That's where headship, as God designed it, is so important when we look at it from the structure of authority, is that when we influence men, when you influence in a godly way in your home, and, and, and our wives refuse to respond to that well in the way God intended, then it's off of our hands. We don't have any more place of authority. We don't control. We don't dominate. We don't create a submission. That's on you. So when you feel that and you're like, I don't want to, then you're going to have to individually stand before God. But as men, if we don't have godly influence in our homes and, and our wives are not responding, they'll be accountable, yes, to a certain degree, but so will we. So will we. And when we take that into consideration, one, it's liberating because we know I'm not just supposed to control the environment of my home. I'm to influence it. But you have a lot of leverage point. When we stop trying to figure out how to control and get things to be the way we want them to be, and we start learning how to leverage life by just being faithful and doing what we're supposed to, loving them well, doing it in the way God intended for us to do it, man, you've got leverage points because it's hard to resist somebody who's been faithful. Even Jesus said it this way. Well, God says it this way. He said, um, do good to your enemies, heaping coals of fire upon their head. Good is hard to resist. And it's what God called us to do in every relationship. As a matter of fact, it's magnified beyond just our own homes because if you carry it into what Jesus said, He said, love your enemies. Do good, influence them. Do good to those that despitefully use you and persecute you and pray for them. That's awesome. He's basically saying, let the, the most godly influence sway in their direction. 
And nothing after that is left to you. If they persecute you or kill you, that will be um, that will not be against you in any way. And so sometimes that happens in our homes. There's that feeling of I'm trying to advance in God's direction. And ladies, beware of this. Beware of if God is giving advancement or direction for your husband and you're resisting it. Beware of the consequences of such a thing. Beware of what that invites into your home. But at the same time, also be free if your husband isn't following and you're pretty sure and you can follow it right in the Bible. It doesn't say absolutely without any sensuality you shouldn't submit, but it's the way you submit at that point. It's what do I do at that point? Certainly I'm not going to be the navigating or the uh, help into him doing something ungodly. This gives insight as to rather... So here, it I want to say this. God holds us responsible only for that which is in our influence and can bear upon the final outcome. So if it could have changed the outcome, we're accountable for that. This gives insight as to whether we base our judgments on pride or in real inability. How many times I have seen the crushing blows of marriages and relationships, and it could be on the man's side, it could be on most of the time it's the man's side because I'm more involved with men. Praise God for that, right? And so I'm involved in their life, and I'm hearing from them, and I've seen, oh, wow, this guy has now has a wall. He has a wall. It's so obvious. He doesn't see it. And this is what he says. I can't do anything anymore. There's nothing else I can do. It's because probably partly you filtered into the damages, and you created so many damages that now it's so difficult to be able to make the repairs. It's going to take some very precious time and attention if your wife is willing to give you that space. But I've watched this wall come up and he says, I can't do anything. No, that's not true. All I can do, you hear people say, all I can do is pray. What? All you can do is pray? That's like, it's like the end of the road. That's the last, like, you don't have any other hope besides prayer. And it says in the Bible, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's how God gets into our homes. That's how God works into this headship part of it. That's the caretaking side of it. And I am grieved terribly by men who will not pray. Men who think that they can do it on their strength. They can just, I'm just going to preach it into my family. Somehow I'm just going to preach them into the line of obedience and not pray. Get a vision for your children. Have a heart anguish for what God's wanting to do in their life. And they can't see it. Maybe you can't see it. So God's calling us into that place of seeing it for ourselves. And so we say it's inability. Inability is generally more a guise for unwillingness than it is an actually true. Did you get that? It's a guise for unwillingness. Probably because we're all emotionally broke down. Probably because we're angry and frustrated and it's over with for us. We've already sold it off. Remember this story with Jesus and and Lazarus, and they said they rolled away this, they rolled the stone over his grave. And Jesus tells them, He says, You roll away the stone. What's the stone that you've rolled over your relationships today? Maybe it's not your marriage, but maybe it's somebody else in life. Amy, I'm so grateful for her testimony today because she's saying, There's stones over relationships in my life that God called me back to to roll those away. Not just to pray over them, but to intentionally and very carefully and wisely reapproach this with humility and see what God could do through that. God doesn't just have you just off in the corner praying most of the time. He has you pray so he can effectively work through you in what he's calling you to do. And you might be amazed at, just as she said, that actually happened in a way that we didn't expect. But God has a way of doing that. 
So most of our problems result from immaturity. It's just plain that way. It just comes from immaturity. We're like, oh, my problem. Oh, this, oh, that. And we're emotionally locked into this trap and this storm that we can't get out of. And it's all about selfishness. So then we see this part where Sarah laughed. And I want to just focus on this one thought because it wasn't just God speaking to Abraham. That's the thing that I caught the most in that. But I noticed as Sarah laughed that there was a discouragement over time. you got to think about the whole story. That Sarah had already tried to find a way to facilitate this desire to have basically an heir to the life of Abraham. And she tried to find that and, and used an Ishmael to do it. Um, and it and it didn't happen. And so she had already, in her youth, in her, what would I say, the time when she could have borne a son, that it didn't happen there. And I wonder if sometimes, you know, we might have looked at this, why did God choose this time? Was it the timing? Or was it the temperature? I heard that once said. Was it that the fact that she was living in disobedience and God wasn't going to bless her until she got to a certain breaking point? Because I think that happens. You're resisting me in your pride, and I'm going to continue to create struggle along that path. I, I thought about this a long time ago. That, uh, long, actually, a few weeks ago. Maybe I'm wrong about a long time ago thing. It, it, a game of chess I played, along, I played a long time ago, and I found out that you know, you're always trying to think three or four moves ahead. And also, you're trying to think of, I want, when I make this move, I want them to make these moves with that move. So you're trying to plan their moves with your move. And what I love about the way God orchestrates life reality for us is that he, counter always, he always counters our move. Whatever we move, we make, he counters. But this is the thing we need to realize. Sometimes God counters a move and drives you into greater despair to bring you to the place of resolving that pride in your life. And so he knows what he's doing, and he knows how he's going to get you where he wants you to, but you might have a mountain experience, and it might take you 40 years to get somewhere where it could have taken two days. Don't waste time with God. Don't think that in his sovereignty that he's always going to direct things in an easy path to get you to where he wants you to be. And what the power of that is, is that here we see Sarah, and she's going through not only it's old, it's impossible, it's naturally beyond, but I'm also looking back in my past remembering my unfaithfulness and my failure toward God, and it's finally coming to a head, and I can't deny it anymore. And now, in light of that, she laughs. You know, if you read a little bit more, just ahead of the story with Abraham, when God told Abraham that I'm going to give you a son, you know what Abraham did? He laughed. But God didn't seem to have the same remark toward him as he did Sarah, because I think it's not the laughter I think it went behind the laughter. What's the context there? And we miss it that sometimes it's the context. So here's what I wrote here. Is, Discouragement over time leads to responses that dishonor God and betray the faithful headship that he has ordained to be our good and his glory. So this wasn't just how she was with God and her failure with him, but what did she drag her husband through? Man. She... I read the story. You know, you guys know the story. What he, what she did to him, the pressure she put on him. You need to spend time with my handmaid, and then boom, 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 and we're going to have an Ishmael, and God's going to give us what we really need in our life, and that's not actually what's going to happen. And I can't imagine. I, I, what I think is this. Now I don't know, but I think Abraham was looking back on this, saying, "This is a bad, stupid plan, and you should not be trying to get me to do this." 
plain and simple. Like, no way, not on your life. But yet he's like, there's something, ladies, please hear me. You have power with your man. Because he would, there, there are men that he would beat to a pulp if they tried to get him to do some things, but he will, he will bow to you. He will do what you're asking him to do. And the reason why isn't just because he loves you, because he's afraid of you sometimes. Because he knows that's the reality. We're like, we get afraid. We're afraid of what's going to happen in our home. We're afraid of what's going to happen down the line. So we were like, okay, fine, whatever you want. I don't think Abraham, if it was not for Sarah, I don't think he would have made that move. That's just me. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. That's, that's all presumption. But we read another story of another man and his wife, and that was called Adam and Eve. And he's standing right there. And she's like, here it is. And he takes it. So there's, there's a vulnerability. What I want to say to you, ladies, is where's a vulnerability with us? You don't know it. You don't think it. You think we're just conquering the world and we're all about being men. And we are with other men. But when we get around you and our home and our family, this is a different feel to it. And it's a different context for us. And if we're going to love you like Christ called us to love you, we're going to have to be able to do this without feeling like we have to force you, compel you, or require you to do it. You've got to be on the ball when you say, I want to do this. And what I love is, is there's a story in the Bible that talks about Jonathan his armor bearer. You're like, is he going to keep on going on? Yes, I'm going to keep on going on. Jonathan's armor bearer, it's like he shut his Bible. He put his notes in there. He's still going on. That's where the, that's where the Pentecostal message gets on fire right there. So we have, we have the uh, story of Jonathan, his armor bearer. And it says, uh, what's so powerful is, read it, read it if you haven't, but go back in there and you read the story, and, and they're about ready to face a greater mass of men than they're capable of, and there's just two of them, and I don't remember how many of those around him, but way more than they were. And he says, okay, so we believe that let's just go out and see if the Lord will work for us. How many of you would like, oh, yeah, I'm good with that. Not even close. But this is what happens is his armor bearer says to him, ladies, think of this for your, your men. Do all this in your heart. I am with you. Whew. And you know what it says about those two? It says their love was greater and surpassed that of love of a woman. There is companionship, kindred, oneness, oneness of mind, the uniqueness of God. What I believe God designed for marriage was something that David had experienced in essentially with Jonathan, with you know some honest ex exceptions to it. Of course, we would make those. But the reality is, is that we realize that God wants to do that in our relationships with one another. And it's so powerful that if our homes could be built on this basis, I want to say this, that one of the reasons for the hindrance of the presence of God in our fellowships and our churches is because this is not how our marriages often operate. And we want God to meet us in this place in greater ways than we've ever known. You want to walk out of your door and your, out of your house and feel that you just walked into heaven. You've got to let God in to your home in powerful and unimaginable ways. And what I say is that that means God's called us to humility. Both of us. Some amazing humility because we're not perfect, but the humility makes up the difference for the imperfection. Hopefully we don't have to make that a normal key to our environment. And the more that we humble ourselves and work toward what God wants in our life, the more we will see him pour out his presence. Jesus said, I will manifest myself to those who keep my commandments. So I believe there's a difference between desire 
I desire the Lord's commandments and I obey His commandments. You can desire and miss His presence, but you can't obey and miss His presence. Does that make sense? We obey, we get the presence of God. We may desire it, but without obedience, we don't get it. Okay, so I want to give a few minutes now because here we are essentially at probably the climax of our time together, and this is where I want to have communion together. And then um, after, after communion, the business meetings I had mentioned earlier. But I want you guys also to know I'm not rushing this. If we ended up missing a business meeting, which I don't know if we can ultimately do right now or not, I do know this. If we ended up missing it, that's fine. What God's doing in your heart and life is more important than any of that. And so what I'm speaking is central and core to, and I know maybe some of you are going through some very broken past saying, I wished I had done that when the opportunity was there, or I did do it and it's still, but what I'm doing is showing you you're relieved of the burden. If you did what God called you to do, you're relieved of the burden. Amen. So we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. I want to open up the altars. If you need prayer, um, we can pray for you. But also just for you in this time, just to worship the Lord. We're going to sing another song. I'd like the worship team to come up. I appreciate what God's doing, and we want to continue to give preference and reverence to that. Yes. That's right. Thank you, brother, for sharing that. Yeah. See, you, you get to see, this is where God's worked it out in, in the testimony of that. Let's let God keep doing that in our lives. Absolutely. And you're like, I don't have a husband, or I don't have a wife. I'm not married right now. You still have other relationships that this very well applies to. And let God in on those relationships. So let's just take that time with him this morning. Amen. Amen.